If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. On the evening of the 16th of December, 1773... Around a hundred men boarded three ships docked at Griffin's Wharf in Boston Harbour, on the coast of colonial Massachusetts. Climbing aboard the Dartmouth, the Eleanor and the Beaver, the men hoisted more than 46 tonnes of tea over the vessel's rails and into the water. The reaction by Britain's Parliament was decisive and enshrined the act of destruction as a key moment on the road to revolutionary war. But why did tea cause such a stir in late 18th century colonial America? Who was behind the event that came to be known as the Boston Tea Party? Was it really a peaceful protest? And why, 250 years later, does the act of civil disobedience continue to hold so much weight? I'm Eleanor Evans, and over five episodes, and with the help of leading experts, we'll delve into the story of the protest, explore its violent origins, get to know its key figures and find out just how important the Boston Tea Party is in the history of the American Revolution. We received the story of the Boston Tea Party, particularly American school children, as if it just kind of happened. Like, they said they were going to text the tea and then everybody organized and they, and they boarded the boats. And of course, it never works like that, right? So it was a 10, 15 year build up, depending on when you want to start it, where resentment was growing and grievances were increasing and both sides were kind of digging in and then escalating the other side as the positions became more and more fixed. That was Sarah Churchwell. This episode, we'll hear more about this build up 
about power and authority in Britain's 13 American colonies and break down the rising taxes that were driving colonists to take radical action. But first, it's time for tea. Why is tea so important to this story? I put the question to Professor and author Benjamin Karp. In the late 18th century, all the tea that Europeans drank essentially came from China. Although we're now familiar with varietals like Darjeeling or Assam or Earl Grey that come from India, most of those varieties do not originate until the 19th century. So in the 18th century, China was essentially the only game in town. And at least within the British world, the East India Company had a monopoly on all trade east of the Cape of Good Hope. So that included India, Indonesia, China, etc. And tea represented 70% of the value of East India Company imports from China to Great Britain. It was 48.3% of the East India Company's income. And the duties on tea that the British government collected represented 6% of the national budget. So tea is big business and an important source of government revenue. But tea also has a tremendous amount of cultural importance in Great Britain and its colonies, as we might guess. Tea was a drink for sociability. Tea was a drink that could keep you up all night. Tea was a drink for families. Tea was a drink of respectability and refinement. And so tea has all this economic importance, but it also has all of these cultural resonances for Europeans, which is interesting because, of course, pretty much no European people had tasted tea, at least in my Western Europe very much before the, uh, 1500. So it's a relatively new beverage. It does not become widespread and common, really, among Europeans until the 18th century. And yet by then, by certainly by the mid-18th century, it has become essential all up and down the social scale. You know, wealthy, refined people drinking it, middle-class people drinking it, but also working-class people drinking it. There's evidence of militiamen in America on the frontier and Native nations, members of Native nations drinking it. So it has become widespread wherever English is spoken and wherever the tea can be imported. By the mid-18th century, it has fallen in price, such that it is now accessible and just massive amounts of tea being transported from China to Europe and, and Great Britain uh, and then being disseminated to the British colonies. Let's get a little closer to the picture in colonial Massachusetts, one of 13 British colonies on the Atlantic coast of North America. Here's Professor of History and author Sarah Purcell. So tea was, of course, tremendously important, really, in, in many parts of the empire, as well as in Britain itself, but very important in Boston. It was the growing population of Massachusetts and of the colonies generally. As I said, many of the people, the majority of people, thought of themselves as British. And one of the ways that they expressed that identity was by participating in the consumer economy that transatlantic trade provided. And in this case, trade with even larger parts of the the empire, you know, tea coming from India and even parts of China. And so tea was seen as very much a drink that people desired to have each day as much as they could. It was shifting from being seen as more of a luxury good to something that even the middling sort and even the poorer people could have access to, maybe less frequently than a wealthy person. But men and women both built a lot of their their sociability around tea. You can see this in the proliferation of 
tea tables and tea cups and teapots and all kinds of material culture that is extremely refined. It's a way that the social relationships of men and women were cemented. And so it was seen as the lubrication of hierarchies and friendships and business deals and all different kinds of social relationships would be cemented around the tea table. So it's an everyday product, but it's one that is really imbued with a lot of meaning as well as significance in international trade. So it's the kind of like the perfect storm of symbolism. If you couldn't have chosen a product designed to provoke people more than this, because it was so symbolic and it had a lot to do with the way people related with one another, much more so than some of the other products like lead or paper. Those were also important in other ways. But tea had this person-to-person connection and a way of speaking of people's relationships within the empire and within the household and within the community that was really, really significant. And so targeting tea, I think, was particularly laden with meaning. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. So there you have it. Two vital ingredients to our story, tea and taxes. I asked Benjamin for a little more information about Britain's relationship with its overseas colonies. Depending on how you count, the British Empire has about 26 colonies in the Western Hemisphere, and 13 of them will end up revolting against Great Britain and become part of the United States in 1776. The Caribbean colonies, the Canadian colonies, those tended to stay with the British Empire. But in North America, you had uh, powerful interests who wanted to 
trade on their own account, not necessarily obey British trade restrictions, did not want to pay taxes to Parliament. And so you have an increasing amount of political unrest in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War that terminated with the Treaty of Paris in 1763. A note here about the Seven Years' War, known in the USA more commonly as the French and Indian War. Fought between 1756 and 1763, the Seven Years' War had erupted from tensions between France and Great Britain. The two powers were fighting, in part, over North American territories, though battles and skirmishes were fought all over the world. By the end of the conflict, Britain's national debt had nearly doubled, from £75 million to £133 million, a debt that would result in more and more taxes being levied on Britain's colonial subjects. In the North American colonies, this led to a phrase that quickly gathered momentum, and you'll often hear it in the story of the Boston Tea Party. No taxation without representation. No taxation without representation kind of boils down the colonial reaction, and especially in the colonial governments, to the attempt to enforce different kinds of taxation after the Seven Years' War. And it's quite complicated because the arguments change over time and they kind of adapt. Sometimes they object to what they call at first direct taxation only, that certain kinds of direct taxes shouldn't be allowed in Parliament because there aren't any representatives elected from these colonies who are in Parliament. Then later they even object to what they call indirect taxation by Parliament. And so it's not incredibly logically consistent on a policy level, but in some ways that's why the phrase no taxation without representation is quite powerful because it gets across the message, which is the case by 1773, 1774, that really it's all taxes that are being objected to. It's not any particular kind of tax. It's the fact that parliament does not have authority to tax the colonists in their minds, that they would prefer to tax themselves. While many colonists railed at the prospect of more taxes, from the British perspective, explains Benjamin, the taxes were a legitimate means of raising revenue that allowed Parliament to support its colonial subjects. From a British perspective, the rights of Parliament were something that they had fought for in the 17th century. And, you know, the idea that Parliament could violate British rights didn't make any sense because Parliament was, you know, the bearer of British rights against monarchical overreach. And so British people felt, hey, the wise men of Parliament ought to be able to make laws for everyone throughout the empire. Americans ought to have no problem with that. They are virtually represented. You know, there are plenty of places in Great Britain that are not, you know, that, that don't necessarily have perfect representation in accordance with their population, rotten boroughs versus large cities that only had two members, right? Nevertheless, right, these wise men of parliament had the foresight to represent everyone's interests. And so they didn't understand the Americans' argument that just because the American colonies weren't directly represented in parliament, that that ought to be some kind of problem. But the Americans had their own colonial legislatures, which taxed them, made laws for them. They were okay with that arrangement. These were local members of the colonial legislatures who understood their grievances and interests and economic capabilities. You know, from the American perspective, those were the people who should be making decisions about who taxed colonists. Parliament should have had nothing to do with that. Parliament might have to regulate trade for the entire British Empire, and they could obviously make determinations about where troops were sent, about diplomacy, about all sorts of other things. But the colonists really objected to the idea that Parliament ought to be able to raise direct taxes on the colonies. Americans in general 
had less of a tax burden than British subjects back on, on the British Isles. And so the parliament is trying to rebalance that in the wake of the Seven Years' War and charge the American colonists a little bit of money. So you have these two ideas that are now clashing. The Americans believing that they shouldn't be taxed because they are not directly represented in Parliament, and Parliament feeling, hey, we fought a war on your behalf. We ought to be able to collect some tax revenue from you as well. And the two sides just cannot end up agreeing on these points. Something you said there, it sounds a little bit like the colonies did have a certain amount of independence already in terms of the legislature and so on. How different did they consider themselves at this time? I mean, in the immediate aftermath of the Seven Years' War, you know, the British Empire has been triumphant. If you had asked most American colonists whether they felt loyal to the British Empire and to King George III and his wife, they would have said yes. They were proud British subjects. There had been some problems during the Seven Years' War. A lot of the colonial militia felt that they were condescended to by British army officers. You know, the American colonists have designs on Western lands, and they're very frustrated when Parliament and the King try to restrict those with the proclamation of 17. 1963. And the American colonists, even though they're loyal to the British Empire, they feel that they are better able to make their own economic systems run by being able to trade with enemies of the British or rivals of the British. And so they don't like the laws that are trying to prevent them from doing that. So while there's a lot of loyalty to the British Empire, they also feel, hey, Parliament is 3,000 miles away. It takes at least five weeks for a ship to get from the metropolis in London to the colonies. Maybe we ought to have a little bit of a long leash to govern our own affairs, because on a practical level, that's going to work much better for our own governance. So culturally, legally, religiously, a lot of Americans feel very loyal to the crown and to parliament, but they also have uh, some sources of grievance. Let's get a little closer to the taxes that were causing a particular stir. I wanted to know what they meant for the average person in the 13 colonies. The Navigation Acts had been in place for many years, and the colonists would occasionally grumble about them, ignore them, smuggle in defiance of them. But things really come to a head in 1765, well, 1764 and 1765, with Parliament passing the Sugar Act and the Stamp Act. Uh, The Sugar Act was actually going to lower duties on molasses to the point that it wouldn't be as profitable to smuggle. But still, some Americans are like, wait, we still want to be able to trade freely with French sugar islands, etc. But then it's really the Stamp Act that... (laughs) It seems almost perfectly positioned to create outrage among the American colonists. It taxes legal documents, it taxes newspapers, it taxes dice and playing cards. So, in other words, tavern goers, journalists, or printers, really, and lawyers are the ones that you're particularly angering. You know, and also seaports and merchants, right, like customs documents having to do with that. So it's directly impinging on the people who are the most vocal to protest against these direct taxes. And so there are protests all up and down the eastern seaboard in objection to the Stamp Act in 1765. Can we go into that agitation a little bit more? What do these protests actually look like? How many people are getting behind them? How many voices are there really in this situation? You see crowds rise up in Boston, in Newport, in New York City, and elsewhere, threatening the people who were appointed to distribute the stamps, the stamp officers, threatening government officials, setting bonfires. Eventually, they'll be burning boats on the common. That might be in relation to other protests, but, you know, burning people in effigy, right? Like, just very loud, vocal street protests to accompany more civilized protests, let's say, petitions that were being sent to Parliament and to British merchants, boycotts that are then going to be launched like we will refuse to import British goods until this tax is lifted, right? So there's a a mix of different kinds of protest, but some of the protest is violent and happening on the streets of American uh, cities and towns. 
By the late 1760s, the issue of taxation without representation, while leading to different forms of protest and action from Boston to New York and beyond, was becoming a unifying issue in the colonies. I asked Sarah Purcell what the picture looked like in terms of independence. Was anyone invoking a potential split from Britain at this stage? No, I mean, I think almost all historians now would say that there was not a sense of independence, um, really until the Revolutionary War started. So probably at least 1775, maybe a couple of people slightly before that. But all the way up through the Tea Party and even a little bit beyond, through this whole age of, of tax protests, there are very few people in the colonies, even the most vociferous resistors who are actually calling for independence. In fact, especially starting in the 1760s, a lot of the pamphleteers, folks who write for newspapers, even the common sort of mob actions, really, they base a lot of their rhetoric and their ideas on the violation of British liberty, as they would say it, literally in that way, that the somehow Parliament was trespassing on people's liberty as free British subjects, and that this was um, totally improper. So there are a whole lot of different arguments about exactly which kind of taxes are parliamentarily sanctioned and which kinds aren't. What does the British Constitution, you know, as a broad collection of laws and rights, really sanction? But however people put together those arguments, none of them really were arguing for independence at all. So it's quite interesting to see this as a dispute within the colonial family. And the most of the colonists would have thought of themselves as quite British and have said that, you know, they were in fact part of the British family. So it was a, a kind of inter-family quarrel, according to to most colonists, for sure. In, and even if they weren't themselves British, there were an increasing number of other European immigrants, for instance, in the colonies. But most of the leaders were from the British stock themselves. Let's head back to Boston, where this inter-family quarrel, as Sarah called it, is picking up pace. So you have mass protests, you have in the city of Boston, the refusal to comply with the Stamp Act, particularly, and particularly by attacking Stamp Act collectors, tax collectors who had been sanctioned by the royal government to collect that tax. And so there is a whole spectrum of we would think of as kind of cross class organization, as well as targeting tax collectors, just the refusal to go along with tax taxes and protests that are quite politicized. So the creation of something in Boston called the Liberty Tree, which is a, a, a specific location in town where there is a tree that is seen as the spot for protest and is often the place where, for instance, Stamp Act collectors are hung in effigy or a place where crowd protests might take place. The Stamp Act was repealed by Parliament on the 18th of March, 1766 after several months of protest and boycotts that had wreaked havoc on British trade. But other acts continued to inflame tensions. The Quartering Act, passed by Parliament in 1765, had required the colonies to provide provisions and lodging to British soldiers. In 1767, the Townsend Acts, named after Charles Townsend, British Chancellor of the Exchequer, introduced further duties and used the revenue raised by them to pay the salaries of colonial governors and judges. This was seen as effectively buying the loyalty of local officials who were enforcing the taxes. 
that's when you see the organization starting to intensify and you get basically the creation of the organization known as the Sons of Liberty. They go by several other names, but this is much more something you could say is definitely a political organization. They coordinate communications between different colonies. There are groups calling themselves Sons of Liberty in, in different colonies. They are seeking to enforce people from boycotting the products that are being taxed, trying to impose kind of community sanctions on merchants who are trading in those products, who are selling products, or anyone who might be buying them. They shame people in newspapers, and the protests continue. So you see something like political organizing start to appear. That actually goes a little bit quiet after the what's known as the Boston Massacre. We'll hear more about the Sons of Liberty next Next episode. But for now, let's pause on the event that Sarah just mentioned, the event that came to be known as the Boston Massacre. By March 1770, in response to the escalating protests, there were 2,000 British soldiers occupying Boston, a city with a population of 16,000. I think once the British troops are quartered in the city of Boston, that really raises the temperature on the whole resistance movement because there is a longstanding fear of standing armies and the power of armies to sort of enact the despotic will of ministers or even the king in, in certain formulations of it. And it seemed to be coming true to people in 1769, 1770 in the city of Boston. If you add to that that there was probably labor competition because some of the troops were also working on the side. And so the part of the Boston Massacre got started because rope workers were in conflict with various soldiers and troops. And they started kind of as a snowball fight and a, a fight in the streets with youths and other working men with some of the soldiers who also, you know, may have been of that class. So it's kind of a street fight that gets blown into larger proportion. And also, also people are killed. Several people are shot and killed, including Crispus Attucks, a black man who is in the crowd on the colonial side that day in the Boston Massacre. And even the fact that it's called the Boston Massacre, you can hear the colonists' perspective in that. And these bullets actually narrowly miss five men who would later participate in the Boston Tea Party, which I find really interesting, right? So it's this radicalizing event. Uh, the Bostonians commemorate it with an annual oration, mourning the dead and protesting against British overreach every year for many years afterwards uh, on the anniversary of March 5th. The question of whether the British soldiers fired the first deadly shot in response to an official order remains unclear. But in the eyes of many colonists, the death of the five people in the Boston Massacre represented clear evidence that British rules of enforcement were disproportionate, brutal, and in this case, deadly. Next time on the Boston Tea Party Igniting a Revolution, we'll delve more into the fallout from the massacre and other significant episodes of violence that preceded the destruction of the tea. There were stamp collectors who were tarred and feathered, which is kind of sounds like a quaint term these days, tarred and feathered, but it, it involved applying hot tar to someone's bare skin and then putting feather or other kinds of material on it that would mean that their skin would essentially be ripped off. 
We'll meet the Sons of Liberty and find out more about the Boston branch responsible for the events of the 16th of December, 1773. But for a variety of reasons, Boston gets the reputation for being the ringleader of all violence. Uh, This is how the British regard them. And we'll arrive at the febrile atmosphere on the eve of the destruction that set the colonies on the road to revolution. They actually fled before the Tea Party took place outside of the confines of Boston because they knew that violence was brewing and they were likely to be at the heart of it. Violence was brewing kind of like tea. Many thanks to my experts for this episode. Benjamin Karp is Professor of History at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Centre and author of Defiance of the Patriots, The Boston Tea Party and the Making of America. Sarah Churchwell is Chair of Public Understanding of the Humanities and Professor of American Literature at the University of London. Sarah Purcell is Professor of History at Grinnell College, Iowa, and the author of books that include Sealed with Blood, War, Sacrifice and Memory in Revolutionary America. This episode was written and researched by me, Eleanor Evans, and produced by Sam Leal Green. Additional fact checks were by Gordon O'Sullivan. Thanks for listening.